0: Well, this morning our sermon passage uh, is 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 to 30. We'll finish out chapter 18 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 to 30. If you find that in your Bibles, just put one finger there and then turn to the New Testament to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 26, 22 to 26. So our scripture reading which we'll read first is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 22 to 26 and then our sermon passage is 1 Samuel 18 17 to 30. Brothers and sisters, you know this, but it's good to be reminded that the word of God is about to be read in your hearing before you now. There's nothing more important that you can be doing right now than giving your full attention to the reading of God's Word. So please listen carefully and intently upon God's Word. 2 Timothy two, twenty-two to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart Turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel 18, verses 17 to 30. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And David's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except for except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines and David brought their foreskins which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law and Saul gave fr- gave him his daughter Michal for a wife but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal Saul's daughter loved him Saul was even more afraid of David So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we count it a great blessing that we have your word at all much less than, than, we, than that we can hold it in our hands and hear it read and read along with it as it's being read. What a great privilege it is, O oh Lord. Help us not to take your word for granted, but rather, Lord, help us to cherish it, to love it, to delight in it, to store it up in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by the preaching of your word now. Not only by the one who preaches, but also, O Lord, by the ones who hear. We pray that we would continue to worship you even as your word is preached. We pray that you would guide your servant as he preaches and that you would bless your servants as they hear. We pray, O Lord, that you would indeed be glorified and we would be built up in our faith. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now you remember that when Saul was trying to entice someone, anyone, to go into battle against the Philistine champion Goliath, he offered his daughter's hand in marriage to the man who killed Goliath. And our passage today gives the details of the fulfillment of that promise although not without conniving and scheming on Saul's part. In our passage, Saul gives the appearance of being more than happy to give his eldest daughter Merab in marriage to David, but he conditioned it on David going out and fighting the Lord's battles. His unspoken hope as seen in our passage, was that David would be struck down by the Philistines. Saul dangled the promise of his daughter in front of David as motivation for David to risk his life against the Philistines in battle. Saul secretly plans to use the promise of his daughter in marriage as the bait in a snare for David. And so Saul is willing to do the dirty work, to let the Philistines rather do the dirty work, He had tried, of course, when he hurled spears at David, but he wants the Philistines to do it this time around. Now, it is a sad irony that even as Saul is setting a snare for David, the Lord's anointed, he's describing the snare in which he hopes David will get caught as the Lord's battles. Don't skip over that. This trap that he has devised, he's he's, He's using some PR terminology and he's telling David, it's the Lord's battles that secretly I hope you'll be ensnared in. That secretly I hope will bring about your death. But ultimately Saul will get caught in his own snare. If Saul had vigorously fought the Philistines, instead of trying to ensnare David all those years and years, his life may not have ended the way that it did. In Psalm 9, David writes that for those who seek Him, the Lord does not forsake, but the wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this thought. God ensures that all who belong to Him will escape the enemy's snares. God ensures that all who belong to Him will escape the enemy's snares. The sermon has has three parts. The first part is the Lord's battle. The second part, the snare hits a snag. And the third part, continually an enemy. Again, the Lord's battles is the first part. The snare hits a snag is the second. And continually an enemy is the third. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, the Lord's battles. As we saw in the previous passage a few weeks ago, Saul had become insanely jealous of David after the women of Israel sang what Saul considered to be greater praises of David than himself. In reality, that wasn't the case. The women were innocent in what they were singing. They were singing both men's praises. And after that episode, or in the midst of that episode, when Saul is so angry, he hurls spears at David. He tries to pin him against the wall, but he realizes that he can't keep throwing spears at David. David is far too popular. He's far too beloved. We see even at the end of our passage this morning in verse 30 that, that David is loved by the people. Everything he does causes the people to love him more, and so Saul can't continue to attack David. And so he comes up with a devilish scheme that he hopes will result in David's death. In verse 17, Saul benevolently gestures to his eldest daughter Merab, and he tells David that he will give her to be his wife. But there's a caveat. First, he must valiantly fight the Lord's battles for Saul. Now remember that David has already met the criteria for receiving one of Saul's daughters to be his wife. David killed Goliath when no one else in the entire Israelite army was willing to go out in the field of battle and fight him. But now that it's time for Saul to meet his obligations, he switches things up. He moves the goalposts. David needs to do just one more thing. And we're given insight into Saul's thinking in verse 17. He secretly hopes that David will be killed as he goes out to fight Yahweh's battles against the Philistines. And in response to Saul's pronouncement that David would be given Saul's eldest daughter in marriage, David says in verse 18, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? It's not necessarily that David is, is being evasive here. It's not necessarily that he t- took a look at Marab and is not interested in her. I don't think that's what he's saying. He just recognizes his own position. He's a, he's a shepherd. He spent most of his life in the fields guarding the flocks. Now, it's not entirely clear, but it seems that some time has elapsed between verses 18 and verse 19. Perhaps David has gone out into battle a time or two by the time verse 19 says, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. If it is the case that David had tried to meet this additional condition prior to what is described in verse 19. If it's the case that David heard what Saul said, he goes out and fights Yahweh's battles. He comes back, and now David, David's uh, bride-to-be has been given to another man. It makes Saul's reneging on his promise all the worse. But I assume Saul, if this was the case, could use as his excuse David's statement that he wasn't worthy to be a son-in-law to the king. This is often the case with people in power. This is often the case with with leaders, with kings, even with presidents. They know how to employ religious-sounding language to to help themselves stay in their positions of power. Saul knew how to do this. He could employ kingly and pious-sounding language. He was sending David to his death, he hoped, all the while asking David to be valiant for him because he was David's king, but also to fight Yahweh's battles. And as one commentator puts it, this is a hypocrisy which comes objectionably close to using the holy name in vain. Saul is taking what everyone in Israel understands to be a holy war against Israel's enemies, and he's using it for his own sinister plans. What Saul fails to realize, what he fails to remember is that it is indeed, indeed the Lord's battle. But David is the Lord's chosen instrument to bring about the defeat of God's enemies. And so by carrying out his plan, Saul is placing himself not only at enmity with David, but even more seriously, Saul is placing himself at enmity with the Lord. This takes us to the second point of the sermon, the snare hits a snag. After Saul's daughter Merab was given, to, given as, as the wife to another man, it comes to Saul's attention that his daughter Michal loved David. And Saul sees yet another opportunity to send David to his death. Verse 21 says, Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And in verse 22, Saul sends his servants to tell David that even though his eldest daughter has been given in marriage, he can still become Saul's son-in-law. Now, this seems to be a formal part of the process that he had not reached with the first daughter, Merab. He's told David, you shall be my son-in-law. In in verse 22, or 21 rather, verse 22, he sends his servants and he makes a formal overture. And David understands that what is expected, expected of him now is that he's Supposed to pay a dowry. He's got to pay the father of the bride a certain amount, a bride price, for his daughter's hand in marriage. But in his response to Saul's servants in verse 23, David describes himself as a poor man with no reputation. David can't pay the bride price for a daughter of the king. And Saul, it seems, is ready with an answer. Saul probably anticipated that this would happen. It's provided in verse 25. Thus shall you speak to David. He tells his servants, thus shall you speak to David. The king desires no bride price, except for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. And the author adds in verse 25 this aside that Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now the snare that Saul has set for David is the 100 Philistines David must kill in order to collect the bride price demanded by Saul. And Michal is the bait. She's the lure. She's the one who's going to give David the motivation to go out and do what Saul is asking or commanding him to do. Saul thinks that he stacked the odds so strongly against David that there is little possibility that David will survive this task. But rather than being daunted by Saul's extreme request, we read in verse 26 that it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time expired for David to carry out the task, we read in verse 27 that he went with his men, but he didn't kill 100 Philistines. This task Saul has given David was a power play. Saul had not forgotten what he regarded as a slight by the Israelite women. He doesn't like the fact, in his own mind, that they see David as more manly than him. And so this task that he has given to David, it is a direct assault on what he believes is David's manhood. He doesn't think David will carry this out. Israelites regarded the uncircumcised as unclean. They didn't want to have anything to do with those who were uncircumcised. David himself used that term as an epithet against uh, against Goliath in chapter 17. Who is this uncircumcised man that stands against Israel? In the midst of David's defeat, Saul wanted David to feel as humiliated as Saul had been when he heard these women chanting about how great David was. But defeat was not the order of the day for David. David brought double the number to Saul that he had required. Saul had no choice but to fulfill his promise and give his daughter in marriage to David, which made Saul hate David even more. Not only had he not humiliated David, but David had humiliated Saul. Saul was not capable of thinking up a hard enough task that David could not complete. Saul didn't realize it, but by plotting David's death at the hands of the Philistines, Saul was himself allying himself with the Philistines. And ironically, that meant that when he told David to be valiant for him and fight the Lord's battles, Saul was putting himself on the losing side. So in truth, the snares that Saul set for David turned out to be snares for himself. Snares in which he himself was caught up in. This brings us to the third point, continually an enemy. Saul gave Michal to be David's wife. We can imagine reluctantly, but he knew that he could not not go through with it. And verses 28 to 29 say, but when Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now imagine this. First it's Jonathan, Saul's firstborn. The, the, the would-be heir to the throne who loves David. They have a beautiful friendship. They're willing to lay down their lives for one another. And now it's his daughter, McCall, who loves David. If there really are two types of people in the world, as is often suggested, those who, who fight when they're confronted with a challenge and those who fly away, when they're afraid of those uh, and who flee it, Saul was definitely of the fight variety. He was not about to give up. He was afraid of David, even more than he had been before because he clearly knew now that the Lord was with David, no doubt. But rather than giving in and submitting himself to what he knew was the Lord's will, Saul's instinct was to fight To set himself against David, the Lord's anointed, and fight him. Now being a fighter instead of a flighter isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? Not always, at least. Probably most of the time, it's a good thing. Rather than running away from the things that you fear, it's probably best, in most instances, to stand firm. We want our kids to not shrink back in fear any time they're bullied, for instance. But Saul became David's enemy continually, we read in verse 29. He set himself against David. Saul doesn't know when not to fight. And he doesn't have the wisdom to align himself with a man of God's own choosing. He is so jealous, he's so embittered that he can't recognize the fact that he is setting himself against God, not just against David. It seems as though Saul, who had set a snare for David, is himself ensnared. He has fallen into the temptation of fearing David. Into the temptation of being jealous of David. Into the temptation of allowing himself to become embittered to the point that, that he is trying to cause David's death. That is how much he hates David. In reality, Saul was a, a bigger enemy of himself himself than David was. David was not a threat to Saul. When he had the opportunity to kill Saul later on, he refused to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. Now here's the uncomfortable truth, brothers and sisters. We want to think we're like David... The truth is we're way more like Saul than we're willing to admit. We view that which is inimical to to us as being outside of ourselves. Our enemies are always out there. We find ourselves, and I think increasingly the temptation for us in this country, as we think the heat, and perhaps the heat is being turned up, but as we perceive that the heat, right or wrong, is being turned up against Christians, our tendency is going to be To circle the wagons, to go in hiding, to be afraid. We think of the enemy as being out there. Now, this is not to say that Satan, who is the chief enemy of our souls, is not out there. He certainly is. It's not to say that the world, that is... That part of the world, of society, of our culture, that is in alignment with Satan. And not all people, not all of culture is in alignment with Satan, but that part of the world that is under Satan's control, it is most certainly against us. It's not to say that. But oftentimes our focus is on protecting ourselves and our families against what is outside of ourselves, and so we forget that we are capable of doing great harm to ourselves, to the people we love. We are good at setting snares for others and walking right into them, just like Saul. And so it's good for us to remind ourselves on a fairly regular basis that the chief chief sinner in each of our lives is each of ourselves. I am the chief sinner in my life. You are the chief sinner in your life. And no one else is. And our sin harms us. And it harms others. It is not without effects and consequences. Again, all of this is not to say that we don't have other enemies beside ourselves. We most certainly do. We are at war with our flesh, but we also have the world and the devil as our enemies. We have to understand that the world and the devil with all of the temptations that are being thrown at us by them with all the devices that we do quite frequently get ensnared in the temptations the devil of course is the chief enemy of our souls he prowls about as 1 Peter says seeking those whom he may devour the scripture reading from 2 Timothy makes it clear that Satan sets snares for us and that passage makes it clear that many have been caught in his traps But that same passage in 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 to 26, it reminds us that God is sovereign and that He can grant repentance and He can lead people who have been caught in Satan's trap to the truth. He can set them free from the snare. And so by God's grace, we can escape the snares set by the world. We can escape the snares that have been set by our own flesh as well as those that have been set by the devil. And the Lord can also cause us to evade snares that have been set for us, as in the case of David in our passage. David does not get caught in the snare in which Saul tries to trap him. The snare that Saul set for him in our passage is one from which God protected David. He did not get trapped in it. The truth is, the biggest snare that David got trapped in was One which he set for himself. And we'll get to that passage in 2 Samuel in due time, Lord willing. But his terrible sin against Bathsheba, his deception, his orchestrating the death of her husband. These were all heinous sins against the Lord. As well as against Bathsheba and others, her husband being one of the main ones. But against the Lord first and foremost, against you and you alone have I sinned, David says. The Lord who had delivered him from so many snares of death. Now we dare not downplay how awful, how damnable David's sins were. We can't let the sepia tones of ancient history allow us to think that David, apart from God's grace, was a pretty swell guy. He did great things for Israel, but that doesn't make him a great man. He did awful things and heinous things just like you and me. But because of God's grace, David is able to say this at the end of his life in 2 Samuel chapter 22. These words are also found in Psalm 18. I'm going to read a a, a fairly large portion, not the whole psalm, but, but a smattering of verses from Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice. And my cry came to His ears. He rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him. That I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. David says these these words not long before his death. At the end of a long life, how can David say these things and not be guilty of lying? Of not breaking the very rules to which he refers in this song as having kept. How could a liar, a rapist, a murderer sing this song? How could he do it? It's exactly because of what Paul says in 2 Timothy. The Lord granted David repentance, which led to a knowledge of truth, and he escaped the snare of the devil. David understood that the righteousness that he possessed, the righteousness that he calls his own, that it was alien to him. It came to him from without. It was not native to him. But he also understood that it was his. His father counted him as righteous because the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, had been counted as his own. And so it was really his righteousness. And he could speak in terms that we barely find ourselves able to speak in today. He could speak confidently of the righteousness that he possessed. Because he knew that it was unshakably his. David could sing the song that became Psalm 18, and you and I, we can sing it too in all truth because of the one who did not evade the snares of death, at least not at first. For David's sake and for yours and mine, Jesus Christ was caught in Satan's snare. He was caught because it was his will to be caught for our sake and in our place. But he was not caught in the snare of death forever. On the third day, he broke free from the devil's trap. Death could not contain him. He burst forth from the grave and lives forevermore. And this is the gospel truth. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him alone for your salvation and not in your own works, you will be set free as well. You have been set free as well. You can sing along with David. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted me. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a righteousness. You are clean. There is nothing more that you can do than has already been done for you to be regarded as such in the sight of your Father. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can say the words of Psalm 18 without adding an asterisk at the end. Without a caveat. Because Jesus Christ has done these things and they are reckoned as your own You are regarded as having done them yourself. Jesus Christ kept all of the rules for you. He stood in your place. He did not turn aside from His Father's statutes. By faith, His righteousness, His blamelessness has been imputed to you. It is counted and reckoned as your own. It is your possession now. Christ has freely given it to you. You haven't earned it because you cannot... And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you cannot give it away. You can't lose it. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you, brothers and sisters, you who trust in Him, you have escaped the snares of death. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. That Jesus Christ went to his death, that he became entangled, trapped in the snare that was meant for us, but that in so doing it meant that we would receive his righteousness as a gift. Lord, we confess that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. Apart from your grace, we have nothing. But we thank you that you have given us this precious gift. We've done nothing to deserve it. But by your grace, through faith, it is ours. Lord, we pray that you'd help us not to forget this. That you'd help us not to take it for granted or even to cheapen grace by taking advantage of this. We pray that sin would not abound all the more in our lives because your grace has so fully abounded. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be grateful people because of who you are as our Creator and Lord, our Redeemer, and because of what you have done for us. Help us, O Lord, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength.